You can take your seats. Um, I just want to say thanks to Darren. I think he must have gone, but that was but his preparation for the Lord's table here just reminded me how our salvation in Christ is complete. I mean, it touches every aspect of our life, and I'm and I'm just so glad he pointed that out. So thanks, Darren, wherever you are. So I have good news for you all. Pastor Jamie will be back next week. You can clap. It's okay. I won't feel bad. I'm just going home to cry. No, not at all. It'll be good to have Jamie uh, back again. Um, It's time he gets back to work, and I'm sure he's watching. (laughs) Okay, if you have your Bibles, uh, I want to invite you to open them to Psalm 71. Um, uh, This is the very last question uh, that we chose for this, um, you know, what does God have to say about? And it, this was sent in by a very good friend of mine. I know him personally. Uh, he's a great guy. It was me. <laughs> Aging for the glory of God. You know, the Bible tells us we're supposed to do everything for God's glory. And so aging has to fit into that category. Now, this has been a particular interest uh, for me for a while. Uh, and there were two catalysts that, that brought all of this about uh, when I was actually in my 50s, the first one was a sermon by John Piper called Getting Old for God's Glory. So you can see I basically stole the title from him. And he was at a past, it was at a pastor's conference, and he preached about a, um, a, a professor uh, in the 14th century, a Spaniard, who was um, an academic, and he was teaching um, Hebrew and all sorts of things to young men who were in the ministry, and he, of course he was aging, and by the time he got to that point where everyone expected him to retire to a nice monastery and live a nice comfortable life, he decided not to do that, and he left as a missionary to go to North Africa. The second catalyst for me was also at a pastor's meeting by, uh, from the pastor and author Gordon MacDonald. Some of you may recognize that name. He was actually a minister here in Massachusetts for many years, um, and McDonald, during that presentation he gave us, he told, he told us as pastors, he said, now consider what kind of an old man you want to be in your 70s. What do you want to be like? He said, go out and look for men who are in their 70s that you want to imi- imitate, that you want to emulate, you want to be like them. And then also look for those old men that you definitely don't want to be like, make a list and start now planning to get there. So that's the That's the impetus behind this sermon. Last week, I talked to grandparents about grandparenting. Okay? We're done. I'm not talking to you anymore. But you get to listen in. It's okay. What I want to do is to talk to the 20 and 30-somethings. How many of 20 and 30-somethings are there here? Anybody? Yeah? 40-somethings? 40-somethings? 50-somethings? Okay, it's never too late. Get started. This is for you. So I've been, ter- I've been determined since I heard these two talks to not become a grumpy old man. Uh, you may have seen that movie. It was a, it was a fun movie with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau called Grumpy Old Men. But it's a very instructive movie because here's what it teaches you about grumpy old men. Grumpy old men are impossible in restaurants and out in public. Grumpy old men tell kids to get off my lawn. Grumpy old men hate technology. And grumpy old men 
wear clothes that are comfortable. They're not into fashion. <laughs> and they look like slobs. So I relate. Since, since looking into this subject, though, I wanted to take it seriously from the very beginning. And I wanted to know, what does the Bible have to say about aging? You know, it, it doesn't seem like the Bible says much directly. But when you, when you look at the stories of the scripture and the kinds of things that go on, you can see a framework developing through scripture as God is speaking to us about the nature of aging. And it's true, right? The minute we're born, we start aging. It just doesn't feel like it until you start feeling the aches and pains. So there's a framework here that I think helps to prepare our minds and our hearts for what it means to age. Seven, seven um, points of this for practical application. Um, all human life is pre uh, precious and sacred. I think we, we know that intuitively. God has made humanity in his image, the crown of his creation, and therefore everyone is worthy of dignity and respect because human beings are the only part of God's creation that can have a personal relationship with him. Secondly, physical life has an end. We know where the story is going. It's going to lead in death. We know that. And eventually, um, we understand the meaning of the scripture that says all life is a vapor. The aging process is also natural and inescapable. I mean, eventually, you start losing steam. You know, start losing energy and resources and that sort of a thing. Uh, if you want to see that, it's in Ecclesiastes, where, where the, the author says, you know, our eyes are getting dim, our teeth are falling out. I mean, it's just, yeah, I get it. I get it. Aging, however, doesn't diminish the value of anybody's soul or the need for a savior. So that makes aging an opportunity to continue to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And aging also helps us to live a life of faith, to face the difficulties of life and death with confidence and hope. But I think the most important aspect about what the Bible teaches about aging is that physical death is not the end. Physical death is a doorway into a new quality of life for believers. Death doesn't get the final word, Jesus does. So let's take a look at Psalm 71. We're going to look at a few um, selections from it, not the entire psalm. But I, I want to tell you what I think about this psalm. It's very interesting. In, in my, one of my Bibles, it had uh, underneath Psalm 71, it said, a prayer of an old man. Well, that caught my attention right away. And, and it seems to me, as I read through this psalm a few times, it seems to me that it was an older man looking back over his life and looking at what it was that brought him to the place where he had absolute confidence in God as an old man. You know, old age has its challenges. Um, there are fears that come with aging, uncertainties, uh, will I per persevere to the end, and that sort of thing. And this author is giving us insight into what he has done all of his life in his relationship with God that has prepared him to enter old age and live for God's glory. So, let's take a look at the first three verses. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge 
to which I may continually come. So the implication there is he had always done this. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. So here's what we are learning from this man. The very first practice that he put into place, presumably as a young man, was to make the Lord his refuge. If disillusionment comes with old age, the way that we combat that is making God our refuge. Basically, what he is saying here is, God, don't let me down. Don't let me be disgraced because I have put my trust in you all of my life. Now, in our younger days, as a Christian, we have to learn to meet to we have to learn what it means to make God our refuge. And it means at least this much. It means that we make God the one we go to for protection from unseen and unknown enemies that are coming against us. And if we're thinking in a New Testament way, we're thinking about enemies that are not flesh and blood. They're not other people. Our enemies are the world, the flesh, the devil, the wicked spiritual forces in high places. That's what is against us, and making God our refuge is to fight against those things. Now, I'm trying to think, what, is there a, you know, the Bible uses the word fortress. We, we don't use that word. We, we know what old fortresses look like, but they don't look like much anymore. But there is a fortress called America's Fortress in the United States. It's in Colorado. It's in Cheyenne Mountain, which is just west of Colorado Springs. And, and here's, here's what it looks like. That's the entrance, and that's part of the fortress. Now, what is there is NORAD, the North American uh, Aerospace Defense Command, the U.S. Northern Command, and the U.S. Strategic Command. There are 15 three-story buildings buried into the side of this mountain that apparently can survive a nuclear blast. Now, there's a good image to think about God as my refuge. He's better than that. He's stronger than that. But that helps us to understand who God is like. So, we can make God our refuge, but why would we make him our refuge at any age? Well, let me give you just, I'm just going to bullet point these because I'll just assign them to you as homework. You can look them up yourself. Why make God our refuge? Because in Psalm 14.6, it says, God is my refuge, so I have direction in life. Psalm 46.2 says, God is my refuge for stability. When everything is around me that's shaking, God is going to cause me to be stable. Psalm 62, verses, I think, 7 and 8, it says, it says God is my refuge so that when, when I need to, I can pour my heart out to him, and I'm safe from all my anxieties. And I love Psalm 73. I think it's probably one of my favorite psalms because you probably experienced this yourself. Have you, ever wondered, have you ever looked at people and said, you know, they're so dismissive of God. They just don't seem to, they don't love God. They even maybe vocally hate God. And yet they get everything. They get the nice house. They get all the nice cars. They get all the best foods. They just don't seem to have a care in the world. They just go from this thing to that thing, and they're always looking so happy and everything. And me, no, I get God correcting me every single day. That's basically what the psalmist said, Asaph. He's a, one of the songwriters in David's music ministry. And then right in the middle of the psalm, things turn around. And he says, you know, when I went into God's presence then I finally understood. He corrected my perspective. 
I began to look at things the way they really are through the eyes of God. And the way they really are is all of those people who are dismissive of God, they're the ones who are on shaky ground. Me, I'm going to be with the Lord forever. I'm with him forever. See, that's the kind of thing that happens to us inside, in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, when we make God our refuge. So that's the key thought, I think. Making God our refuge means at least this. When we come into God's presence through prayer or Bible study or worship or whatever it is, He redirects our attention away from ourselves towards Him. And now we see the reality of life. So God is our refuge is the answer to disillusionment or uncertainty, but he's also our confidence when we are indecisive and we have to make decisions and we're not sure how that will go. So, uh, verses 5 through 7 in the psalm say, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent or a sign too many, but you are my strong refuge. What the author is saying here is, I've made God to be my confidence in life. If I'm afraid of not persevering, or if I may be afraid to be tempted to withdraw at the end of my life, that last third part of my life, I can trust that God is going to be reliable. I can trust that God is going to help me make those important decisions like, where am I going to live? How am I going to, how am I going to live? Will I outlive my money? Will I outlive my pension? Will I outlive my investments? How will that look? What will happen? Will I have a lengthy illness that I have to deal with? And the psalmist here says, my confidence in the Lord, will it be as strong in the future as it is when I am younger? So he's saying, God, when I'm old, don't set me aside. Don't abandon me when my strength fails, because I know it will. You know, sadly, not all believers are spiritually stronger with age. You know, just think about the Old Testament heroes that we have. David, for example, or Solomon. You know, their, their commitment to the Lord seemed to sort of waver as they got older. King Asa is a very good example for us. You can look him up in 2 Chronicles 15 and 16. Where he, he started out his life. He's a reformer. He's a, he, he created a, he, he, God used him to create a revival in Israel, a revival of, of the religion of God. And by the end of his life, by the end of his life, he's being attacked by his enemies. And instead of turning to God for his strength, he turns to foreign nations. He wavered. And God sent him a disease that cut short his life. So here's what we can count on from God. He is the same God when we are old that he was when we are young. It's that simple. He's unchangeable. On this subject, Charles Spurgeon said, God is not the God of the young saint, the middle-aged saint, but he is the God of the saints in all their ages from cradle to tomb. And he took his confidence from this verse, and so should we. I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you, and I will care for you, and I will carry you along, and I will save you. There is the answer to, will I outlive my income? 
Will I have a crippling disease? There's the answer right there in front of us. Now, here's a practice I've done, I've done for about, about seven years now, something like that. I wish I had started younger. So if you're in that 20 to 40 age bracket, get started now. Here's what I do. Every, every morning, um, we do devotions, and I journal. I journal all of my devotions. I have for years and years and years. That's not the point. But the point is, at the top of every single page, I put these letters, R, G, S, L, and then a number. It stands for remembering God's steadfast love. And I think back over the day and think, well, what, what did God show me that demonstrated his love to me yesterday? Or what is coming up today where I believe I'm going to meet the love of God and he's going to show it to me? And I write it down and I assign it a number. Now, if you're starting young enough, Here's another thing I'd like you to do. On the front of that journal, whatever it is, or however you keep it, a notebook, whatever, write the words, do not open until you're 70. And the reason is, when you're 70, you're going to need looking back on what God did because he's the same God for you at 70 that he was when you were 30. That's what Spurgeon said, and I believe Spurgeon too. So that's, you know, if you don't want to do that, that's fine. But I'm just saying there's got to be a way that we remind ourselves of the goodness of God every single day throughout our lives so that when we reach that last third of our lives and we suffer those deep disappointments, we have something to hang on to. Now, the third way that this, this author... Uh, uh, ages well to the glory of God is through prayer. Here's what he says in verse 12. Oh, God, don't stay away. My God, please hurry and help me. There it is. That's just simply a prayer. You know, the shortest version of that prayer is God help, right? We say that. Now, you've probably known some cranky elderly folks who complain about everything, and I do too, and, and I'm sometimes one of them, but that's beside the point. The point is, let's be gracious towards them, first of all, because they may have experienced disappointments and failures and letdowns and betrayals and illnesses and losses all the way along. And they, they really do affect our lives. So we'll, we'll give them a little bit of grace. But when you look at them, remember one thing. The difference that you want is that you, while those things may happen to you, you won't be a grumpy old person by the end. You will still be grateful you will still be thankful to God. You will experience the graciousness of God's work in your life and combating the fear of aging. Now, what do we have to do? What can we do in order to prepare ourselves for that last time, that last third of our lives? Well, I think the answer lies in two points made by the psalmist here in verses 17 and 22. So let's look at verse 17. <clears throat> you have taught me from my earliest childhood, and I constantly tell others about the wonderful things you do. So there you see right at the beginning in verse 17, you've taught me from my earliest childhood, and then I tell others. Now that I'm old and gray... Don't abandon me, O oh God. Let me proclaim your power to this new generation, your mighty miracles, to all who come after me. Here I believe the psalmist is telling us, make learning your constant companion. 
then I believe that is the remedy for old age cynicism. You know, we, we, can, we can learn to do all sorts of things in our latter years, right? We can learn to play an instrument. We can learn to uh, do painting. We can learn how to identify uh, various species of birds and plants and that sort of thing. That's wonderful and we should do that. The greatest learning we can give ourselves all through life and including in the old age is learning about God himself. See what he said? You taught me from my earliest childhood. So he's been a student of God's from the very beginning. Christians, we are students of God. We are scholars in the school of Christ, and we are professors in the plan of salvation. We can tell people about this stuff. I've been reading in um, Matthew lately in my devotions, and chapter 13 is a collection of the parables of Jesus. And it seems like at one point, Jesus was giving parable after parable after parable. And the disciples were there. This was all in public. But then eventually, Matthew tells us, then they all went into the house where Jesus lived. So it's probably Capernaum where Jesus owned a house. And, it, and, they, and they all went in there. And, and it was interesting. I had never seen this before until just this week. Um, the disciples heard all of these parables. I mean, it must be four or five before they go into the house, something like that. So they hear them all, and there's several different kinds. And when they're in the house, they ask Jesus to explain one of them. Because they were really curious about one in particular, and that was the parable of the weeds. And so they asked him about it. You see, that's what disciples do. The word disciple also means learner. It means just because you're a disciple, you don't know everything. You don't get everything. At the first, you have to be curious. You have to initiate conversation. You have to do some study. You have to ask for help in understanding what it's like. And then when it dawns on you what it's like, oh, you just want to tell everybody. Oh, you can't believe what Jesus just told us about the weed. Man, you're going to love this. When I went to seminary the first time, I, I did go twice, but they didn't, it wasn't because they kicked me out. Anyway, when I went to seminary the first time, it was the first time I'd ever been in seminary. And first Bible courses I'd ever had. And I'd go on a Monday night uh, for four hours, and we'd have lecture and stuff like that. And then uh, I'd go home, I'd go to sleep. Tuesday night at dinner, I just, I just had to tell everybody, everybody, meaning my wife and our two daughters, what I learned the night before. I said, you won't believe this stuff. I, one of our professors just told us all about the book of Revelation. This was the most amazing stuff I've ever heard. You guys got to hear this stuff. And they sat there listening to me, which was really amazing to me. But it wasn't planned. In other words, I didn't just do it because this is what fathers do. You know, we go to seminary and then we tell our families what they need to know. No, it wasn't like that at all. I was just so excited about the stuff that I was learning. I couldn't keep it in. I had to come home. And eventually the girls were saying, well, what did you get at school last night? Oh, you won't believe this. We were studying the book of Hebrews. Oh, my goodness. Very natural. That's, what the, that's all this psalmist did. He made lifelong learning his companion so that he could tell other people about what he found out. Congregations in every generation need to keep themselves alive in the apostolic teaching. In fact, this is what Peter says to us to do. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him 
the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. And here's the key, and moral excellence with knowledge. With knowledge. We are continual learners. And we live in an age when the church is, is being, is being uh, uh, bombarded, maybe too strong a word, but, but certainly criticized for the way that the evangelical or faithful church is. I, um, uh, I, I'm on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, and there are certain people that I follow, and I follow the ones that criticize Christianity mostly because I want to see what they're thinking. And one of the most common criticisms of the evangelical church is that we believe, quote, the gospel. <laughs> and it sounds weird. People will say, you just need to be loving. You just need to love everybody. You know, Jesus fed the masses. That's the only miracle that's in all four gospels. So feed everybody. You know, forget all this doctrine stuff. That's, that's divisive. Just love people the way Jesus loved. Now, I want to say this. That is an accurate truth. We must love all people like Jesus loved them. It sounds so right, and it is right. We mustn't demean anyone. We mustn't demean those who are even in open rebellion against God. We're obligated to receive them and to respond to their needs with as much care as we can without any strings attached. However, there is a fatal flaw, an eternally fatal flaw in that philosophy. And that philosophy is that Jesus did love everyone, but he called everyone to repentance. And the best example of that is John 8, where Jesus meets the woman who is taken in adultery. She is dragged in front of him. Jesus wisely and with brilliance dismisses these Pharisees. And then he stands there looking at this woman. He said, where are your accusers? Anybody here to condemn you? And she looks around. She says, no. There was one who could, but he didn't. And then Jesus said, go, sin no more. That's the call to repentance right there. He loved her. He loved her enough to call her to repentance. That's true love. Half love is I love you and I accept you and I affirm you and everything about you just the way you are. That's not love. That is indifference. True love calls people to repentance as well. And the church needs to be able to do this. So, so we need to take a page out of the early church, the book of Acts. We know they were a loving church, but they were also a learning church. They sat at the feet of the disciples in order to hear apostolic teaching. And then they carried that teaching into their lives and into their communities. So we need to do the same thing. So here's my recommendation to you. Whenever you hear about a small group or an institute course that's being taught by Darren or something maybe, maybe Haley does, or however you hear about it between September and May mostly, that's what we do. 
at least try to fit in two or three times a year when you can participate in those short-term courses or small groups because you must maintain learning. Learning here in a worship service is right and proper. This is a weekly thing, and it's good that we have it, but we also need more. Uh, just think about this. When you want to start a good fire, do you use oak or balsa wood? When you want a fire to burn and keep on burning, you use dense, thick, solid wood. Think of studying the Word of God like that. It will keep the fire of your soul burning and alive when you throw that into the mix. So, now finally, the author here tells us to make praise and our joy in God, the highlight of our lives. Then I will praise you with music on the harp because you are faithful to your promises, O my God. I will sing praises to you with a lyre, O Holy One of Israel. I will shout for joy and sing your praises for you have ransomed me and I will tell of your righteous deeds all day long for everyone who tried to hurt me has been shamed and humiliated. So he is a lifelong learner and he's a lifelong praiser. Doubts come at us in many directions and in many forms. Like, you know, will, our, will we be alone? This, this author probably was alone at this point in his life. We don't really know, but the speculation is good. He probably outlived his friends. You know people like that. Will he be set on the sidelines? Will he be useless? Will he become irrelevant because he is so old? Notice how the psalmist says, what I'm going to do with that last third of my life, I'm going to praise you with music on the harp because you've been faithful to your promises. You know, you don't start praising the Lord at the end of your life if you're not busy doing it at the beginning of your life because we become more of what we already are. And so gratitude and praise from the beginning of life, from the beginning of of knowing God and doing it intentionally means that the, that the older that we become, we become like that person that people want to hang around, not the people, not the person nobody wants to hang around. On this verse, verse 23, uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this, it shall be no weariness to me to praise you. It shall be a delightful recreation, a joy. The essence of song lies in the holy joy of the singer. Soul singing is the soul of singing. I love that phrase. Of course it is. Then he says this. Till men are redeemed, they are like instruments out of tune. But when once the precious blood has set them at liberty, they are fitted to magnify the Lord who bought them. Our being bought with a price is more than sufficient reason for our dedicating ourselves to the earnest worship of God, our Savior. There it is. Now, I want to close with just a couple of quotations uh, from um, uh, two men. Uh, one of them is uh, Ralph Winter, who is the founder of U the U.S. Center for World Mission and the William Carey International University. He wrote this book in uh, 1985 from which this quote comes. Most men don't die of old age, they die of retirement. I read somewhere that half of the men retiring in the state of New York die within two years. 
save your life and you lose it. Just like other drugs and other physical or uh, psychological addictions, retirement is a virulent disease, not a blessing. Where in the Bible do they see that? Did Moses retire? Did Paul retire? Did John or Peter? Do military officers retire in the middle of the war? John Piper said something very similar, and, and this is how he concluded that message that I mentioned at the beginning. Don't be afraid, Christian. You will persevere. You will make it home sooner than you think. So live dangerously for the one who loved you and died for you at the age of 33. Don't throw your life away on the American dream of retirement. You are secure as Christ is righteous and God is just. Don't settle for anything less than the joyful sorrows of magnifying Christ in the sacrifices of love. And then in the last day, you will stand and you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that aging is inevitable. We are all getting older. And with the increase of years come changes over which we have little or no control. Those changes are either going to drive us to you or to denial and self-absorbing sadness. So we thank you for the promise to sustain us when our energy is waning, to carry us when we can't carry ourselves, and to rescue us when we get entangled in ways of thinking and choosing that contradict your great love for us. Father, we thank you for the promise that age doesn't rule out flourishing and fruitfulness, but your spirit and your grace will keep us, as the psalmist says, full of sap and green. You are our rock and righteousness, our stability and standing in grace. Though our, outwardly we are wasting away, we'll not lose heart. In fact, we will thrive in heart, for you will bring to completion the good work that you started in us. As our eyesight grows dimmer, let us see the beauty of Jesus with increasing clarity. As our hearing gets fainter, let us hear your voice louder than ever, declaring us to be your beloved children of grace, in whom you delight, and for whom you have prepared an eternity beyond anything that we can hope or imagine. And we ask all of this in Jesus' great name, and everybody said, amen. Let's all stand and, and sing together before we go. <laughs>